Is that working? Okay. So Brother Matt said something a month ago, and at the time it seemed like a really good idea. And here we are. Praise the Lord. I put together this PowerPoint, and it's my first PowerPoint. So let's see how this does. This little QR code in the corner, I thought it was kind of clever. You can uh, point your phone at that and download all my notes. So if you don't write down all the scriptures, this will pop up at the end, and you can get them all. And um, I think I included my email, so something you don't like, you can let me know. Um, so um, Brother Rick on Sunday said something that I really enjoyed. I always like hearing quotes from believers from a couple hundred years ago. John Winthrop William Penn especially, 300 and 400 years ago, and they still affect us. And, you know, I thought about why is that? You know, I wasn't around. I didn't come over on the Mayflower, regardless what my children might think. The, um, but, but they do. We derive some sense from that because we're Christians and we're Americans, and we know that there's something meaningful going on there. If someone were to ask you... Does it mean anything special to be an American? And you would to think about it. Does it just mean I live between Canada and Mexico? Or would you begin to explain to them why we don't have a king and the revolution, civil war, we landed on the moon, the Bill of Rights, all this sort of thing. And you begin, you'll find that you end up telling them the story of the United States. And at the end of it, you realize that's who we are. Because that's who, that's what we identify with. And the story that you identify with is where you get your meaning. And there's people that don't like that history and that don't identify with that. And they're kind of breaking down what it means to be who we are. And that's not what we're talking about. But um, just to give you an idea, for example, I never went to Penn State never played football in high school or college, and yet if they lose on Saturday, I'm, I'm pretty sad the rest of the day. It just messes me up. Why is that? Why do I identify that? And people are painting their face. I've had grown men in my living room on their knees because the Philadelphia Eagles were going for it on fourth down and three to go. And they're, they've, they're, they're going nuts because they've identified with it. They're totally bought in. They've never played for the Eagles. Those players have no idea who they are. But they're excited about it. And they drive some meaning from it. And just to give you a quick idea, <clears throat> if I were to tell you that I went for a walk and came across this lady and she was asleep, you'd say, okay, so what? What do I do with that? But if I tell you her name was Snow White, Boom, all these ideas just kind of flood into your mind because you know the story. And you know where she fits in. You know where Happy and Sneezy and all these guys fit in and how the story ends. And, and the Bible is kind of the same way. When you know the story, you know where you fit in and you, we derive meaning from that. And the bigger the story, the bigger the meaning. And we're a part of the most epic, biggest story there is ever. No Marvel movie can touch it, has any idea. They try to duplicate it, but they just never get there. 
So um, Pastor Kiefer last month said something that struck me, and I wonder if it affected you the same way. He said, the, the story of the Bible is not about us going to heaven. And that's mostly true. I mean, the, most of the Bible is historical narratives. It's poetry. It's song. It, it's not all about going to heaven. It's about God's dealing with his covenant people here on the earth and trying to produce something, to bring some fruit from his people. Now, obviously, it is about going to heaven. N.T. Wright said, uh, said something clever. He said, uh, look, um, the Bible's not... Going to heaven's important, but it's not the end of the world. You'll, you'll get that in a second. But if, if the story of the Bible is not all about going to heaven, remembering that in the book of Revelation, heaven is coming to earth to accomplish something that God has started in the beginning. If it's not all about going to heaven, our job as Christians isn't all about witnessing. Now, at first, that kind of strikes as funny. It's right up there. It's 1B, right under 1A. 1A is our first job as believers is to be believers. Our first job as Christians is to be the people of God. Because when we're witnessing, we're really just inviting people to join something. And there, there needs to be something here for them to join. There needs to be meaning and purpose besides that place that we're going to someday. So um, let's, let's just start with Luke chapter 1. This is John the Baptist is born, Zechariah. Can we read that a little bit? I think that's pretty good. John the Baptist is born and Zechariah begins to speak. He sees himself as part of a story that's big and, he, and something meaningful has happened. And he says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to his fa our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days." First thing to notice is people in the Bible really talk different than we do. If we had the opportunity to tell the story of the coming of the Messiah and John the Baptist, the forerunner, we probably wouldn't describe it this way. But what does he do? He retells the story. He talks about, he sees what he is experiencing right now as the fulfillment of what was promised to Abraham. I think he had a bigger understanding than I do. Um, go to the next slide once. There we go. How many have ever seen this graphic? Okay, Brother Matt has. This thing is a graphic of 
every cross-reference in the Bible. Every time the Bible references itself. First of all, it's really beautiful. And second, we can, the Bible's a unified story. It's not some random notes and this prophet said that and this prophet said this. They're all talking about each other. And what we want to do here, since we derive meaning from story and the bigger the story, I want to just pull a couple threads, start in Genesis and just show them and then we'll end up um, hopefully somewhere really good. But first, let me just say that when we go to the Bible, the Bible's like a mosaic. You can't just pull out a scripture and say, there, that's what it's all about. Or here, this is, this is my thing. You have to do all of the pieces, step back, and you can see a picture. Like a tapestry. You can't do a tapestry with two or three threads. It takes many step back, see the whole thing. So let's go to Genesis, the Garden of Eden. Actually, keep track of where I'm going. Well, let's first, let's do Isaiah 27, 45, and chapter 45. I think I got them in here. Yes, here we go. Days are coming. Let Jacob take root. Israel will blossom and send out shoots. They will fill the face of the world with fruit. Isaiah 45 says, Heavens, sprinkle from above. Let the skies shower righteousness. Let the earth open up so that salvation will sprout and righteousness will spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. You get the sense that God's after something? It's a really big thing that he's doing, and um, he hasn't always worked out the way he's planned. So let's go to the Garden of Eden. I wanted to get that in there. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. The Lord planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he has formed. So there's a place called Eden, and in the eastern side of it, there's a, he made a garden. We just say the Garden of Eden. But there was a place called Eden, and in the eastern end, God made a special place that was a garden. And it says, there he put the man. And that's where God was. Now, so you're going to notice a a thing of three going on here. The special place, the pretty special place, and then the rest of the world. And you should start thinking, sounds like the tabernacle. The holy of holies, the holy place. And then the outer court. God formed that in the beginning with with the garden, Eden, and then the rest of the world. And the idea is his presence is here. He puts man in his place. And from there they would fill the world. 
and God's going to fill the world with his glory, but it's going to happen with a human and from his holy place. So, but there's one little detail, and that is in Ezekiel, it says that there was a mountain in this garden. And the mountain was the place where God's abode was. Now, at first, we're thinking, sounds like Bible trivia. But again, the Bible's a mosaic. We have to pull the thread. If the Bible repeats it, well, then I'm going to pay attention to it. Brother Rick said that um, it doesn't matter what we think. It matters what the Bible thinks. And so it not only matters what the Bible thinks, it matters the way the Bible chooses to say it. So if the Bible wants to talk, say, about a mountain and then repeat it 20 times, I'm going to say that must be important. They're trying to communicate something. So let's real quick go to a couple of references. Exodus chapter 15, verse 17. Now, again, we're kind of keeping in the back of our mind the idea of story. This is what Moses thinks is happening. They've come out of the land of Egypt, the land of bondage, sin, death, and now they're delivered. And Moses says, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. All this language is linking back to Eden, going forward into temple. And not only does it go forward into temple, it goes forward into us as part of the new covenant. But we'll get to that. It's his abode and the sanctuary. Sanctuary is temple language. Let's go to the next one. Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Isaiah chapter 11. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him the nations shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. What's, what's God's resting place? In short, it's his temple. It's Mount Zion. It's just to pull in all the cross-references. Revelation chapter 21, verse 2 and 3. Again, we started in the beginning with a garden, and we end up with a city. God starts with a seed, and it gets big. Starts with Adam and Eve, and they fill the earth. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. 
This, his dwelling place will be with them. He will be their God. They will be his people. This is right out of Exodus. When they, when they came out of Egypt, the first place they came to, it was a mountain. What was on top of the mountain? The presence of God. At this mountain, three things happened. God renewed with them the covenant, gave them a pattern for the tabernacle, and then gave them a law. Renewed the covenant, he says, I'm going to be your God, and you will be my people. And they said, whatever you say, we will do. Gave them the tabernacle. What was the purpose of the tabernacle except it was a place for God's presence to dwell? It was the first time that the presence of God was tangibly manifested on the earth since Eden. Eden was the place that heaven and earth intersected. But we have the fall and it was broken up. God brings them out of Egypt and the first thing is build a, tab- build a tabernacle so that I can live in the midst of my people. It's the plan. It's the purpose. It's the story. And so the job of the priesthood was to maintain this presence. And Israel maintained it so that the earth could be blessed. The promise made to Abraham was, I'll give you many descendants, a people, put you in the land, and you will be a blessing to the nations. They'll be a blessing by keeping covenant and showing the world what it looks like when people worship the true God and live under his blessings. So, let's also, since we're here, say something about the law. Let's see, are we at that point? Yes. First of all, the law, the point of the law, and again, Paul says a lot about it. We're not going to go into Galatians and Romans and all that sort of thing, but just in general, big picture. The point of having a law is you don't have a people if you don't have a law. You don't, if you don't, a kingdom without laws is not a kingdom. The purpose of giving them a law was to give shape and definition to the people of Israel. So if you lived in Moab and somebody said, who are the Israelites? They'd say, oh, well, those are the people who worship at Jerusalem, circumcision, they keep Passover, they don't eat this, they wear this, on this day they do that, on the Sabbath they don't do any work. Those who are who the Israelites are. So it gave shape and definition, borders to who a faithful Israelite was. If you loved God and you were delivered from bondage and God says, here's how I want you to live in my land, you're going to say, no problem. This is the living God, the fountain of living water. Whatever you want us to do, I'll eat this, I'll not eat that. And that's kind of the way we live as Christians. Whatever you want, Lord, we'll live the way you direct us. But the thing to notice here that the law was not given as a method to get to heaven. 
And we know this because the law was given to people who were already in a covenant with God. They had already come out of Egypt. They had already put the blood over the doorpost, already ate the Passover meal, went through the water and under the cloud, delivered from Pharaoh's army. They arrived at the mountain, and God says, um, renews the covenant and gives them the law. Because now you're my people, I want you to be identifiable as my people. Also, think of the law as rules of the house. Growing up, we had rules in our house. And we told our children to, if you will hearken to the words of your parents and obey our law, you will live long in the land. It worked the same way. Now, did we love them because they kept certain rules in the house? No, we loved them before they even knew what the rules were. And even after they disobeyed, we would still die for them. So, but those laws served as a, as a way for the people, the people, our children, to give them an opportunity to demonstrate the faithfulness to the household and to participate with the family. Now, if somebody was going off the rails, the first way to tell is they ignore the rules of the house, start eating in the living room. They don't participate when you're having a work day. I mean, but that, the, think of the law as rules of the house. So we got that, um, the tabernacle, the law. We, we need to just go back to Genesis and pull one more thread and pull it all together. And that is that Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. And this is something that gets thrown around a lot. And I really want to put a little bit of definition on this. And Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. They were given a job to do. Psalms 115, verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of men. Psalms 8. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. They were crowned. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So there's a, two things going on here we want to note, and that is the concept of the image of God. They were given a royal status that was high. It was over everything but it was right under God. They were answerable to God. They were to represent God in the earth. So if I was emperor of the world, and I said to one of you, um, you are now governor of Williamsport. I'll be back in one year. Well, you're going to make some plans and, and think, what should we do? We could do this, we could do that. Well, you're going to think, well, what's the emperor going to want to see? I need to do it the way he would do it. And that's all the image of God is. We represent him in the earth. Think of it as a verb. We image him. 
We do as he would do. We represent him, and we'll give an account one day. Also, there's a concept of, of priesthood going on with Adam and Eve. They were in the presence of God, and yet they were supposed to fill the earth. They represented God to the rest of the world. And what's interesting is that in, let's go to Exodus, chapter 19. He, the only point here is that God says of Israel, the entire nation, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The whole nation was called to be a kingdom of priests. Well, I thought the tribe of Levi were the priests. And yet, God says this of the nation, his covenant people. The tribe of Levi represented, stood between God and the people, but the nation of Israel was called to maintain the presence of God and represent God to the world. So there's the concept of priesthood. Now, this concept of being an image bearer, there's one, one more thing to that, and that is to represent him, you must you may make wise decisions. We can't just choose what is good enough if you're going to represent the living God. If you're going to be given this high status, that is status of royalty, you have to choose the highest and the best because you are representing him in the world. And what I want to do is give you a target for that. I just don't want to say, well, be nice, love one another, be good. But I want to give you a very specific target because, well, Imagine if you give someone a, a bow and arrow. But then you give them a target. If you have a target, you're guaranteed to be a much better aim. There's no way to, to hit the mark unless you know what the mark is. Now, God knows that we're not perfect. We're not going to hit the mark all the time. But we are obligated to aim at it. And if we don't know what to aim at, we're guaranteed to miss it. So, the definition of good, the target. The definition of good is not a mystery. The definition might seem a little bit obscure, but this is something that was known from Aristotle through the Middle Ages, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Finney. You can't read Finney's sermon without hearing this over and over again. And the definition of good is to desire the greatest well-being or happiness for another person without self-interest. This is why all sin is selfishness. We are either giving or we are taking. Love gives. Love is desiring the best for another person. You can't always perform it. We have jobs, we have to sleep, we can't do this, we can't do that. 
but we're able to align our hearts and aim at this target to desire for them the best. If I see someone who's been blessed and say, come into some money, gotten a good job, or even better, they're, they're telling you about a great deal they found. Is there sometimes something in you that goes, oh, I wish I had found that deal? Or do you say, good for you? I know you've been looking for something like that. Love gives. Selfishness pulls in. That's called greed. If someone's promoted or getting ahead and we're envious, I don't assume all the attention in the room belongs on me. That's pride. When I see beauty in the world, I don't assume it's all for my consumption. That's lust. Love gives, selfishness takes and holds in. So we are to... God is doing this 24-7. He's unlimited. He doesn't sleep. His mind is always towards the greatest blessing for his creation. And when we do this, we are aligning with the Spirit of God. So if love is the highest thing we can aim at, and there's nothing beyond it, there's no miracle we can perform, no revelation we can get. And if it is the highest thing we can aim at and do, it has value all in itself. If I witness to someone and there's no response, it doesn't matter because of the intention of our heart. If we pray for someone and nothing happens, it is the love and the good that you desire has value all by itself. Jesus says to lay up treasure in heaven. How do you do that? Every time you deny yourself, you serve one another, you say, I will give and I won't expect it in return, there is treasure laying up in heaven. And anyone can do that. There's no limit in money. There's no limit in education. There's no limit in status. You may not preach to thousands, but you can empty out and do what he did. So we said that I made a point about the law of Moses for a reason. The law of Moses was how you identified who a faithful Israelite was. In the new covenant, how do we identify the faithful follower of the new covenant? Well, I skipped a slide on you, but that's okay. Oh, no, you're right there. Jesus said to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. Now, we think that sounds wonderful. That's great. But what he's doing is just establishing a new covenant like the old. I'm going to have a people, and the world's going to know who they are because they live in faithful alignment to my law. Jesus also said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that sounds wonderful. 
But Jesus got that from the book of Leviticus, the manual for the priesthood says that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus speaking to his disciples is doing the same concept of priesthood as in there. In, in Matthew 22, someone comes and asks, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Well, I thought we're free from the law of the prophets. Let me paraphrase. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you will be aiming at the thing that the law and the prophets have been aiming at from the beginning, from Genesis, from the tabernacle, from Sinai, through the prophets. And now Jesus is the capstone and who's going to produce the results of a faithful people. So there are four verses in the New Testament that talk about the law of love. And they're really kind of surprising because the New Testament believers saw them as people who were under a law. They were under the law of Christ. They were under the law of love. They were under the law of liberty, uh, James says. And we're obligated to this because we've been given a royal status. We have a vocation the, the love and good works that we do are not ornaments on the tree. It is the thing that he is after. So a couple of these, Romans chapter 13. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Well, two things. One, if you fulfilled the law, what else is there to do? We have some other job? This is the thing. This is what the people of God, the fruit they're supposed to be doing. And I know this is happening because I see it here. I see the Spirit of God in people that are anxious to do this. The other thing it says is, owe no one anything except love. You owe the love. We are obligated to it. It is our job because we've been made in his likeness. Uh, Galatians 5, serve. Through love, serve one another. For the law is fulfilled in one word. Galatians 6, carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. James refers to it as fulfilling the royal law. Is that a coincidence, the royal law? Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We are made in his image. It's our job to imitate him. 
<clears throat> Therefore, oh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. What is the calling we have? Is it to go to heaven? Or is it to be the people of God, this privileged thing that we've been called to be a part of? He says, walk worthy of this calling. How do you walk worthy of such a calling? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Hebrews um, chapter 1 verse 3 He is the radiance of his glory, speaking of Christ, the exact representation of his nature. Colossians 1 says, he is the image of the invisible God. In Colossians 3, we're told to put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This is creation language. This is being made in his image language. This is Genesis language. We have been created in his image. And and in the new covenant, we are the new creation. Ephesians 4.24, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. Now, Israel had this calling and they did not succeed. In Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah records basically a love song. Lamenting his own chosen people. He says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. He thinks of his people as a vineyard who produce a fruit. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. I think it's a coincidence that his vineyard was on a hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the middle of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? One thing we know about the Lord is he's not done. He's not done. In Exodus, he tells Moses that he keeps covenant to a thousand generations. He's not going to stop. And in Romans, it says that Jesus was a manifestation 
of the faithfulness of God because he did not give up. He didn't, he's going to get the result. He's going to have a people. And it's happening right now. Just like Zechariah thought he was part of something big that was happening, we should see ourselves as part of something big that is happening. We might not be important, but we're still stalks of grain in that field. We're still participating in it. Isaiah 45, verse 8. God's going to have what he wants. Heavens, sprinkle from above. Let the skies shower righteousness. Let the earth open up so that salvation will sprout. Righteousness will spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. I, when God creates something, he doesn't just walk away from it. He, he gets the thing for which he is after. He is showering down and he's looking for the earth to respond in, in faithful response in the image that he made it. Being the thing for which He made it to be. And by the Spirit and through Christ, that thing is happening. The Lord bless you.